So, uh, if you're anything like my mother, um, when I say the word politics, the temperature tends to chill. Uh, and there's a general frozen eye. And I grew up in a household where I would argue about politics and religion the whole time with my dad, uh, so much so that I was banned uh, from talking about it by my mother. Uh, and like any good son, I made a career out of talking about it as much as possible. Um, you know, that's what it, it means to be a good son, I think. Um, but so, so, but when we use this word politics, often we have very negative associations with it. Um, and I can kind of feel a slight disease in the room uh, as we, you know, what, where's he going to go with this? Um, but so, yeah, so, uh, and, and generally our negative association has to do with the kind of what comes in in our news feeds. Uh, and we associate that term with kind of fights between Democrats and Republicans uh, in D.C. or what goes on in state capital. Um, but I want to sketch for us a different vision of politics today, a scriptural vision. Um, and here's just some examples of things we might not ordinarily think of as politics. So some families getting together, uh, worried about a, a dangerous crossing in their neighborhood and getting the local authorities to set up a stop sign so that there's a kind of slowing down. That's people coming together to do politics. Or in a church context, in an older sanctuary, there might be pews and the pastor and the elders and the, some of the congregation get together and they have a debate about are they going to take the pews out of the, uh, of, of the sanctuary? Often a very fractious uh, uh, debate if you've ever been involved in those kinds of things. Um, uh, but that is a form of politics. Or uh, people coming together in a homeowners association. Is, any, is anyone here a member of a homeowners association? Homeowners, a few of you, few of you. Uh, these, are, these were the. I discovered these when I moved to America. They're these very strange creations, um, but but they can determine everything. Uh, you know, the color you paint your house, the length your grass has to be. Uh, but when homeowners associations get together and decide on policies for the neighborhood, that's politics. They're doing a form of politics, and. Generally, what we think of as politics as the kind of what takes place between Democrats and Republicans is probably better called statecraft. Um, and that's about kind of control and management of the state and all the kind of controversial things that go on around that. But all of us, uh, in many different contexts, whether it's at work, in our schools, uh, in our neighborhoods, um, the reality is we're all involved in some kind of political life together. We're forming, norming, and sustaining some kind of shared life amidst disagreements uh, about you know, whether, whether it's there should be a stop sign or shouldn't be a stop sign or what color should you paint your house and what color you shouldn't paint your house. Um, so we've got disagreements, we've got differences of power that have to be negotiated, uh, and we've got kind of different visions of what human flourishing entails. And really, there's only a kind of four options uh, ahead of us. When we encounter someone we disagree with, we can do one of four things. We can either kill them, Problem solved. I don't have to sort anything out. Um, they can, we just get to do my way. Uh, I can create a system where I coerce them, so I don't have to listen to them. I don't have to pay any attention to them. Uh, I can get them to do what I want without having to talk to them. Um, I can make life so difficult for them that they run away, they flee. Or I can do politics. I can negotiate and navigate some kind of common life Amit disagreement, asymmetries of power, different visions of the good, without killing, without coercing, 
without causing others to flee, where we can reach some kind of shared agreement uh, about how to go on, about how to solve this particular problem. Now, it really is as basic as that. We get very confused about that. Uh, we get very kind of create large scale, and I, I teach at university, and we have kind of huge histories of political thought we teach. Uh, but it really, when it comes down to it, it is as basic as that. The alternative to politics is violence. And either we do some version of politics, form, norm, and sustain some, shared, some form of shared life, or we're going to kill, coerce, and cause others to flee, uh, and all that that involves. Now, obviously, uh, much of human history is taken up with the story of people choosing the other kinds of options. I think as Christians, for strong theological and scriptural reasons, not just pragmatic ones, we should be invested in doing politics. And I want to sketch out for us why that's the case. But let's begin with thinking about the Bible. I'm going to reflect on Jeremiah 29 uh, extensively through this sermon. But if we think about Scripture, Scripture is full of political language. We can't understand what it means to relate to God or relate to our neighbor outside of political terms. God is a king. God is sovereign. We've just been singing about it. Who are we? We are the people of God. That's a political term. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. These are all political terms. To understand what it means to be church is to understand a way of doing politics. Uh, and that can seem very strange. We tend to think, well, if I'm, if I'm encountering politics in the church, something's gone wrong. No, it's not a failure when you do politics in church. It's only a failure if you end up in schism, causing others to flee, killing, coercing others. Now, Christianity has a terrible history of doing all of those options, um, but those are not faithful options. The faithful option is how do we, in, as we're doing to, so today, come together with others to have a, some form of shared life together in pursuit of a shared vision of flourishing, the worship of God and communion with God and neighbor. And that's what we're doing. And so we need to think about the church should embody a form of politics and, and it's, we've, something's gone deeply wrong when we're not embodying that vision of politics. So I want to explore how, whether we like it or not, politics is a vital arena in which we under, come to understand what it means to be in relationship with God and how God is in relationship to us, how we come to understand and practice love of neighbor uh, and, and receive the love of others as well, and through which we learn really key discipleship things like humility, faithfulness, patience, courage, love. These core characteristics, these fruits of the Spirit, uh, uh, we can learn through doing politics in particular ways. So I'm going to do that through meditating on Jeremiah 29, because I think it helps us understand what it means to be a faithful witness today. So um, it should be coming up on the screen. I'm just going to read the passage. This is Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 14, if you've got your Bibles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, it's possible to argue that this passage is probably one of the most influential passages in the history of Western political thought. Um, it's from this point onwards that the life of the people of Israel changes fundamentally. And what's happened to them, it's important to understand the backdrop here. So they've uh, lost possession of the land of Israel and been carried up uh, over to Babylon in, in captivity in a place of exile. And Jeremiah writes this letter to them. And we've got to think of what this means to be in exile, that they've lost all that gives them bearing in the world, all that orientates them to the world around them, whether it's the food they eat, the ways they farm, the soil that they're farming, the light on the trees, the kinds of trees, the smells, uh, the familiar sights and sounds. All that was familiar and helped orientate them is gone. And they're having to make sense of a completely new space. But it's even more worse, worse than that. It's not just a total experience of disorientation and dislocation. But also, they have lost what they took to be the sign of God's promise to be with them. They've lost the land. This was the, uh, they've lost control of the land. And now they're subject to what others are telling them to do and say. And so this sense of, is God even for us anymore? Is God with us anymore? Is coming into question. So that is what Jeremiah is addressing. That reality is what he's addressing in his letter. And in many ways, it's, I think this kind of speaks to our moment. And if another figure who draws on Jeremiah 29 was Augustine. Um, I'm sure you're avid readers of Augustine here, the great African saint. Um, and his great magnum opus, The City of God, was also written to a people experiencing dislocation and disorientation. In his day, it was the sack of Rome by the Visigoths. You all go, yes, go Visigoths. Uh, you know, it's the sack of Rome by the Visigoths in 410. And this was the first time Rome considered the sacred city 
Rome, the center of the empire, Rome, the thing that guaranteed the Pax Romana, the peace and prosperity of all the known world, that had been sacked by the Visigoths. And this, uh, for the first time in 800 years, had been attacked. And this was deeply traumatizing. What, what did the future hold? Was everything up in the air? Was this a time of total destabilization? If the center doesn't hold, does everything fall apart, to quote Yeats? So, for Augustine, he reads Jeremiah 29 as speaking to this kind of moment, and he reads it as an allegory of what it means to be a Christian in the earthly city, while we wait not for a return to Jerusalem, but for the coming of the new Jerusalem, the new creation. For Augustine, Jeremiah 29 applies to all Christians in all times, not just the Jews in Babylon. Augustine is recognizing that before Christ's return, the godly and the wicked share a common world, a world in which the sheep and the goats can only be separated at the last judgment. And while the people of God are no longer part of Babylon, until Christ's return, they share in and benefit from its peace and prosperity. So the peace and prosperity that they share is of a prideful and sinful earthly city. Now, this allegorical contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon, i.e. the earthly city, is a central theme that Augustine is picking up from the New Testament. And it's there in the book of Revelation, where we read this deep critique, this deep kind of portrayal of the antichristic nature of Babylon. But surprisingly, the people of God are not called to leave Babylon, flee it, form a gated community elsewhere, they're called to remain in Babylon, to be witnesses so that all may come to glorify God. And so both Revelation and Augustine are doing something very radical. They're portraying the Roman Empire as equivalent to Babylon, a strange, sinful, and evil place directed away from the love of God. But it's a place, nevertheless, that Christians for the moment, a call to serve God within. And this is a very bold claim. Rome at that time was, as I said, seen as the source of peace, prosperity, of good order, of all that was right and true with the world. But Augustine in the book of Revelation, and scripture more generally, is identifying that with Babylon, the evil and sinful place. And so they're calling into question how far you should identify with any form of political order. And Augustine and Revelation, pretty much most Christian political reflection for the past kind of 1,500 years, has really built off this claim that whether it's a city-state or a nation-state, nothing should be identified with the kingdom of God. All forms of political order, whether they're Rome or Great Britain or the United States, are forms of the earthly city that the people of God are on pilgrimage through as they wait for the one true kingdom of God. But as we shall see, not over-identifying with the earthly city doesn't mean that Christians are excused from seeking its welfare. So like Jeremiah and Augustine, we live in tumultuous, difficult times. The old certainties no longer apply. There are huge threats on the horizon, whether it's AI or future pandemics or global climate change or whatever it is, whatever the con big concerns is. We're, we're facing huge changes. And the temptation 
all the time when faced with difficult and tumultuous change in a period of disorientation and dislocation is to turn and blame others for the problem. It's the Trumpists, it's the pro-vaxxers, it's the anti-vaxxers, it's uh, Zuckerberg and Facebook, it's whatever. We all have our own particular figures who we want to blame. And we all struggle to hear the very hard word of Scripture, which is the word of God, the judgment of God, comes to us first and calls us to take responsibility for this situation before we immediately turn to blame others or accuse others of all that's wrong, with causing all that's wrong with the world. And so the challenge of Jeremiah 29 is one that's central to the Christian faith. And it's the challenge of repentance. It's very, very basic. And to relearning obedience to God. However, the place and manner of our discipleship program is very strange. We are called to see the need for repentance and to relearn obedience to God through forming a common life with who? The Babylonians, the pagan people who scandalize us, who we find threatening, who we feel have kind of led to our disorientation and dislocation. That is who we're called into relationship with, to form a common life with, and through that, we will learn obedience to God and see our need for repentance. And so Jeremiah's call to seek the welfare of the Babylon, uh, seek the welfare of Babylon, comes to a defeated and marginal people struggling to make sense of what has happened to them. Rightly or wrongly, many Christians today feel this way. Um, we no longer live in Christendom, the church no longer has a cultural priority, Christians are no longer in control, some lament this, some think this is needed. And whatever one's position on that, the reality is there are various reactions to that. And as we saw on January the 6th, many of those reactions lead to violence and destruction, not to a politics of the common life. And so I think the challenge that Jeremiah still poses to us is really how do we hear this sense of disorientation and dislocation as the demand for repentance and relearning obedience to God because we have failed to learn in Jerusalem, i.e., what is Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the place where we feel most at home, we feel most in touch with God, the place where we feel uh, we're in control, where all that makes sense to us is, is around us. That place has become the place of faithfulness, disobedience, oppression, and injustice. And the place where we feel like it's exile, where we feel disorientated, where suddenly there's all these weird people who I don't like who are saying all these strange things, that is the place of learning obedience and repentance. And it's very disorientating, but that's precisely what Jeremiah is calling us to take seriously. But Babylon is not just a place of repentance. It's also a place of renewal. Exile is the context where God's faithful promise is most profoundly at work. Instead of seeing suffering or dislocation or exile as a reason to despair, the Israelites were invited by Jeremiah to see it as the place where God is most powerfully at work in a new way and present to the people in a new and distinctive way. 
If only they can pay attention to what God is doing now in this time at this place and not endlessly hark back to Jerusalem, the place that actually is the place of oppression, faithlessness, and disobedience. So what we discover, I think, at the heart of this text, Jeremiah 29, is the deep logic of Easter, that the way of the cross, the way of unmastery, the way of dislocation is the beginning of the journey into resurrection, into the beginning of the journey into Easter Sunday, the beginning of the way to Pentecost when God's Spirit is poured out on all flesh and all may sing to God's praise and glory. So I think Jeremiah 29 teaches us that while exile is a strange place, it does feel threatening, it is disorientating, And that can happen either because we've been forced to move there for social, economic, or political reasons, or it's just become strange. It's change, cultural change happens around us. But that is the place for a renewed relationship with God. That is the place where God is powerfully at work doing a new thing. And we should not, so the issue is we should not feel at home here. Nevertheless, the situation's not about to change, and we're to make a life here with others. And that's Jeremiah's motif of build, plant, marry, running through the text. Indeed, Jeremiah 5 to 7, um, 29, 5 to 7, is a call to become part of the public life rather than retreat into a sectarian ghetto or defensive enclaves or gated communities or escapist fantasies. Crucial to this is rejecting the false prophets who perpetuate illusions and fantasies, all of which constitute a refusal to accept the reality of the new world that's coming into being. As Jeremiah puts it, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. Now, of course, we're beset by escapist fantasies, peddled by all sorts of false prophets. I'm particularly prone to this one, uh, which is the idea that somehow if I get my small batch bespoke uh, craft with everything life going uh, and my little kind of artisanal garden, uh, that I'll kind of be free from the depredations of the consumer kind of world and mass consumption. Um, it, it's a fantasy, uh, but it's one that's very seductive. But of course, there are, there are other forms of escapism through the immersion uh, in the kind of gadgets of whether it's Xbox or iPad or the kind of platforms of distraction, TikTok and Facebook, etc. And it's not that these are necessarily bad things, it's when they dominate our attention and become idols under themselves that they become, uh, they, they draw us away from really attending to what's going on around us. And then, of course, there's the more mundane fantasies of pornography and drugs and drink. But there's another set of fantasies that are religious in nature and therefore more sinister because these false prophets are dressed in the clothes of piety and righteousness. And in our day, these false prophets say, you know, keep doing what you're doing, uh, just your relentless pursuit of the material comforts of the Western dream, just sprinkle the light aroma of Jesus over the top of them. You don't really have to change uh, your kind of lifestyle. Or if you have enough faith, you will be healthy and wealthy. Uh, or 
when you read what's going on and around the world and the suffering and pain that is there in, in the news, uh, you don't need to worry because, hey, Jesus is coming to whisk you away to pie in the sky while the earth burns up. But all of these fantasies, whether religious or cultural, are ways in which we refuse the possibilities of a common life. They're individualistic heavens that divorce us and insulate us from hearing the cares and concerns and laments of the world around us. They atomize and segregate us rather than bringing us together with others to form some kind of common life. They're private worlds that literally de-skill and demotivate us from being able to do the hard work of cultivating a just and generous common life with others we might find difficult or disagree with or even find scandalous. Now, to get at quite how serious this retreat into gated communities and enclaves of the like-minded is, quite how damaging to our faith and the church it is, we have to understand something of the ancient distinction that the New Testament was wrestling with. And this is the distinction in, in Greek, it's called the oikos, or the, the kind of private realm of the home and, and the economy, and on, on one side, and the other side you have the polis, the city, uh, or the political realm. And uh, in, this, in the kind of Greco-Roman context, the only truly free life was not what took place in the home or in the economy. That was the realm of private interest. That was the realm people were subject to necessity. That was the realm that women, slaves, and children were consigned to. No, the only truly free life could take place in the polis, uh, and that's where people could come together to deliberate together about how to... Uh, govern the city and what needed to be done. And of course, in the Greco-Roman world, the only truly free people were property-owning men. But the New Testament addresses all of us as citizens of the polis or city of God. And it declares in Galatians 5.1 that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. So who is addressed by this? It's not only men, but also women, slaves, and children. We are all freed not by property or by any work we do, but by Christ. And we are freed to come together and act with others as citizens of the polis or city of God for the good of all, so that all may come to glorify God, a la revelation, and all might know the reign of God over Babylon. To be truly free is to actively participate with others in the public or common life of God. That's what we're doing here as church. That's the politics we're embodying together this very morning. We are bearing witness to the common life of God uh, through our shared life together so that all may bear witness and glorify God. So to live into the freedom Christ has set you free for involves acting with others in the public life or in the kingdom of God. That's why Paul in Ephesians and elsewhere bangs on about reconciliation between Jews and Christians and women and men and Christ tearing down the walls of hostility. Christ overcame these divisions and the hurts that separate us, uh, both from God and each other, not just so we can like, have a nice therapeutic moment, so that we can come together and be the reconciled community of God, bearing witness to God's shalom in our life together. That's what it means to be the politics of Christ in this world. 
So the church is to be this witness to a reconciled common life in the midst of Babylon. To withdraw from seeking the welfare of Babylon not only robs God of his public witness in the world, but it is also an act of self-sabotage. It's an act of re-enslaving yourself. It's to lock yourself into a private world of necessity and compulsion and turn away from the free life you've been given in and through Christ, which is to be free for and with others. The fruit of prayer and ministry that truly brings freedom is a people healed and reconciled so they can act together as citizens of the city of God. And in doing so, they are witnesses to God's reign over Babylon in all its contemporary forms, whether that be London, Los Angeles, or Lagos. So Jeremiah helps us see that our life as part of it is, has, has, life here has a divine purpose to it and to prevent us from harboring fantasies of escape into private worlds. At the same time, Jeremiah warns us not to give way to despair, that nothing will ever change, and we just have to accept the status quo as a given. Jeremiah declares that, and this is verses 10 to 11, for thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. So what is hope? It's a common Christian virtue, it's a sentiment we say, but hope is the trust, is to act in trust that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. That despite the horror, and we have to name the horror we often see, despite the injustice, despite the suffering, despite the very real illness and etc. and trauma we see around us all over the world and in our own lives, that we have to name these things as, as genuinely bad, but at the same time trust that they are not the deeper reality, that they're not let them define reality, that Christ is the Alpha, the beginning of all creation, and the Omega, the fulfillment of creation, and that that determines how to understand this genuinely as suffering, trauma, and difficulty, but not to be overdetermined by it, not to be swallowed by it, that there is a deeper truth within which this horror lies and is determined by it. And so to have hope is key uh, because then we're not, we're, we, we trust that this reality is not all there is. There is a reality beyond this when there will be no more crying, when there will be true justice established, when there will be no more suffering. And so I think that we, we, we can hold off the sense that nothing will ever change because of a genuine hope that the love of God is the ultimate determining reality for life here and now. Now, so far I've been focused on what it means to be a citizen of the city of God. But now I want to briefly consider what it means as citizens of the city of God to be at the same time citizens of the earthly city. If being a citizen of the city of God is about being a member of a community of faith, then being a responsible citizen of the earthly city involves recognizing that we're all members of different communities of fate. Now, what do I mean by that? In your street or subdivision or wherever you live, 
you're often living beside people who are very different to you. They might eat differently, they might speak a different language, might have a very different vision of life or the world or what's good, right and proper uh, to you. Now, all of that might be the case, but when the forest fire comes through, you share the same fate to them. Your house will burn along with theirs. If there's not a decent sewage system, when it rains, no one can go surfing on the beach. Uh, when the hurricane comes through, as it does in uh, my bit of North Carolina, that we're all affected and the power goes out. And either we come together to help each other out in our shared community of fate, or we do one of those other options I began with. So, I think the same could be said of our places of work, the schools our children attend, and the country as a whole. You don't have to like those you live around, but in their welfare, your own welfare is bound up. There's a deep realism in what Jeremiah is saying. And one of the worrying things, of course, about the contemporary context is whether it's online or offline, is that many of us are trying to deny or escape this. We're creating illusions of independence. We're increasingly separating into lifestyle enclaves that think and act the same way, and we try and insulate ourselves from sharing the fate of others who live around us, especially we find strange or difficult or trying. But it's a fantasy to think you can escape your community of fate. It's an illusion. If there are only sink schools, poor healthcare, mums and dads are having to work three jobs to make ends meet, then Things aren't going to go well. Crime will rise, homelessness will rise, youth delinquency goes up, drug use increases goes up, and this isn't going to be a good city to live in. You know this. As Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Good citizenship of the city where we live involves asking, what do we have in common with others? Good schools, clean and safer streets, nice parks, clean beaches, a living wage that you can support a family on. We have these interests in these things, and we share it with others, whether those others are Sikhs, secularists, liberal progressives, hyper-conservatives, whatever it is. As Christians, we're to work with others to create a common life where possible, and, not, and, and a common life where people aren't constantly drawn into fantasy worlds that are not good for them, that lead them into debt, that lead them into addiction, that lead to family breakdown, and to work together with others in pursuit of genuine goods we all share as a community of fate. Now, these are not eternal goods. These, these goods won't save you, but they're goods nevertheless. If there aren't good parks for our kids to play in, this isn't a good place to be. It's very basic. So as members of the various communities of fate, we're to follow what Christ says in Matthew 5. We're to be salt, that is, working with others to preserve what is good and upholding peace and justice where possible. And as members of a Christian community of faith, we're to be light, pointing the way in the darkness to the judgment and redemption of all things in Christ. And this is what it means to have dual citizenship, because that's what we are. We're all dual citizens. We're citizens of a particular earthly city and citizens of the city of God. So let me close by offering two bits of advice for doing politics faithfully in this highly polarized age. The first is to put people before program. 
Now, often what we've done, over, particularly over the past two years, is we've thought our program, our, whether that's our ideological program or our kind of economic program or whatever it is, we've tended to prioritize that over flesh and blood human beings. And instead of uh, seeing who is before us or a group of others as children of God, as flesh and blood creatures, who live and breathe and have children and have communities of care and burdens and frailties and, and difficulties they're working through, also joys and shared hopes and dreams. Instead of seeing that first, we see a set of ideas or a, or a program that we don't like. And so we prioritize the program and we lose the person. And I think it's crucial in this day and age that we remember as Christians that all are called by God and all are children of God and all bear the image of God. How we, even those we find extremely difficult and don't like and drive us up the wall, particularly at Thanksgiving, uh, you know, this is, this is vital that we see a human being who God loves and Christ died for and not a program. Uh, so that's my first, let us put people before program. I'm not saying the issues you have aren't important. I'm not saying they don't matter. They do matter, and it's important we debate them. It's just, let's get our priorities right. Let's not put the program before the person. The other bit of advice, I'd say, is we need to listen. But we need to learn to listen in a particular way. Now, I think I'm guilty of this, and I'm sure many of us are here, that most of us tend to listen like my cat, Marvin. Now, Marvin is a very good listener. Uh, but Marvin is not listening with charity in his heart. Marvin is not listening to the little baby squirrel or the, or the mouse or the vole uh, with hope in his breast. He's listening to know when to pounce <laughs> and eat up the prey. Uh, and sadly, in most political debates, that's how most of us operate. We're not listening uh, for the person. We're listening with our ideological checklist. Oh, they've got to item 32 BC. And we come all Ben Shapiro on them. You know, it's like, it's, it's you know, that's, the, that's, the, that's how most of us listen. And it's a problem because actually that's when we're putting program before people. We're not really hearing who is this person. We're not hearing what are they cherishing, what are they caring about, what are they burdened with. We're losing sight of the image of God of the person before us, and we're putting an ideological program and therefore destroying relationship, destroying the possibilities of reconciliation, destroying that person's healing. And so I think it's very important we learn how to listen with charity and listen with mercy and listen for the person. And one very concrete example of this, I was talking to um, some people at Duke, uh, where I work, and uh, they are very involved in environmental crisis and the, uh, kind of engage in environmental management stuff. And they were going out in North Carolina and trying to kind of get people to engage with the, with the issues. And they're particularly concerned about church folk. Um, and I said, well, you know, where do you begin the conversation? And they, oh, we've got these data charts and these, you know, technical information, and no one seems to be paying attention. I'm like, well, it's not surprising, A, it's a very boring place to begin, but also, like, you're not taking them seriously as persons. Ask them what they love. Ask them what they cherish. These are very conservative folk. 
you know, ask them if they, they like hunting and fishing. And most of them do. It's a very popular pastime in North Carolina. Uh, and begin there. And what would it mean for their children and children's children and great-great-grandchildren to still be able to hunt and fish in the forests and lakes that they love? What would be the conditions to make that possible? And what would be, make that impossible? But that's a very different place to begin the conversation. It takes them seriously as people, it takes them seriously what they love and cherish, it takes them seriously that they have a biography. They're not just a collection of data points or statistics or ideological commitments. And I think we need to find better places to begin the conversation. And generally, I would say, crucially, and this is, I guess, is a third bit of, bit of kind of exhortation, is we need to put our roots down in Christ and our walls down for those around us. We need to reach down and really grow in faith, hope, and love and draw on the Spirit so that we can manifest the fruits of the Spirit while at the same time putting our walls down and getting rid of our ideological checklists so that we can genuinely encounter those around us and not read them through the miasma of whatever our news feed is telling, them, telling us. And I think this is very, very key if we're going to actually discover just and generous forms of common life together. Now, I am not saying it's going to be easy. It's a risk. It's difficult. People can be extremely annoying and do really dumb things that drive us insane, whether you think that dumbness lies on the left or whether you think that dumbness lies on the right, whatever it is but it's about the quality and character of our relationships, not whether we agree or disagree that matters. See how these Christians love one another. It's not a comment on see how these Christians agree on this 10-point plan. It's see how they love one another, i.e., what is the quality and character of our relationships with each other amidst disagreement, amidst different visions of what flourishing involves, amidst the struggles to decide what should schooling policies be or what should tax differential policies be or city ordinances or, or whatever it is. So let us take seriously that risk and grow then in faith and hope and love so that all might bear witness to the glory of God through our quality and character of relationships, both with the Babylonians and with each other, so that the experience of the shalom of God, the reign of God, might be tangible and tasty amongst us. Thank you.